Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. A word of warning before we start. This episode contains details that some people may find distressing, including references to alcohol abuse, ill mental health and suicide. If you are affected by any issues raised in this episode, you can find support at mind.org.uk. While my world shook and shifted under my weight, you were constant. Checking in, calling the psych ward phone, sending the flowers. The daisies that when they arrived were one of the few possessions I, as a person who was a danger to myself, was permitted to keep. Welcome to Love Letter to My Friend, the podcast where friends write and share letters of love and thanks with each other. Hosted by me, Lisa Smazarski, And her friend, Alex Walker. And I should mention my new friend, little baby River, who you might hear snuffling around in the background, who's a ripe old age of three weeks old, Alex. Yeah, I'm very glad we decided to go podcast rather than video at the minute. My eye bags probably could do with hiding. You look pretty good to me. Alongside Alex's new baby, River, we're also joined by today's guest, editor-in-chief of Empire and author of Coming Undone, Terry White, who will be writing a letter to her good friend, Phil Hilton, writer and creative consultant. Terry and Phil have been friends for over 20 years and first met when Terry applied for a job as Phil's assistant on a magazine he was editing. From a working relationship, a friendship grew and their relationship blossomed from purely professional manager and assistant to a strong, loyal friendship of equals. Despite some differences that others may see as barriers of age, gender and perhaps even that initial career dynamic, Over the past two decades, their friendship has flourished and they've navigated a path that has seen them become almost family to one another. It's been a friendship of absolute highs, but also lows. A few years ago, whilst working in New York, Terry suffered a breakdown that led to a suicide attempt and she spent time in a psychiatric hospital. Alone and isolated, Phil was one of the few people Terry reached out to as she counts their friendship as one of her true lifelines. Terry wrote about her experience and the recovery from that time in her debut book, Coming Undone, and is here today to share how her friendship with Phil helped her through that time. Terry and Phil, thanks so much for joining us today. Total pleasure. Thanks for having us. I think we should um, probably kick off by saying we actually know Phil and Terry rather well. We worked with them for quite a while when Phil was editorial director of Shortlist Media and Terry was the editor of Shortlist. Um, But the pair of you have always had a really strong bond. Terry, was it a really obvious choice for you to choose Phil to write your love letter of friendship to? Phil is actually one of my very oldest friends. I didn't really have many friends at school or university and it was only really when I moved to London that I decided to give friendships a go. And as I'm sure we'll get into, Phil was one of the very first people I met before I moved to London. 
Yeah, you tell that story a bit in your letter that's coming up. Phil, are you prepared for the feelings that might come in this letter? I'm very, very uncomfortable about this whole situation because I know I'm going to experience feelings in a public context. I know that you all know what's coming up and I don't, so I feel completely out of control. So and I've rarely felt this a level of discomfort, actually. So, uh, yeah, no, in no way. Please carry on. And so would this be a normal dynamic for you both? Do you talk about your friendship? Do you talk about what you mean to each other? We do sometimes, I think. Usually around a kitchen table after a certain amount of red wine and cheese has been consumed. I always find the cheese is the crucial bit of the evening when we're going to tip into feelings. Here comes the cheese, here comes the feelings. Yeah, Um, there's a thing of moving through a door, isn't there? Marked cheese and red wine, which enables you to then access your feelings which I spend most of my time trying to lock up and so I think there have been some drunken reflections on the friendship very late at night but on the whole you don't talk about it do you don't reflect on it which I think is partly why this format's so fantastic and deeply uncomfortable. Let's take you into your discomfort zone then a little bit more so Terry I'm going to hand over to you to read your letter. Are you ready Phil? I'm ready. Dear Phil I can still see the flowers, white and lemon rind yellow, standing up straight and tall, the only flash of life and light in the room eight floors up, its walls painted grey by the wire mesh over the windows that they were worried I'd jump through. But wait, I'm getting ahead of myself. My memories, our memories, begin 14 years prior to the day that the flowers arrived. It's the year 2000 and I'm in your office meeting you for the first time. Me, an intern from the fancy fashion magazine downstairs, gagging and gasping for a full-time job. You, a big-time editor in search of a PA. After the interview, when I'd returned to my village, I called your office line over and over, eventually leaving a breezy voicemail. I just wondered, you know, if you'd made a decision, I remember saying in a pitch that most other human beings likely wouldn't recognise. You later told me that you'd never heard someone so desperate, and truthfully, I was. There was no plan B for me, ever. But also truthfully, Christ, I was a terrible PA, with no experience and intense ambition to be an editor and definitely not a PA. I'm pretty sure you knew that I would be too. But still, you gave me the job. Samantha Mumba was playing on the radio in the front room when you called with the news. And just like that, you were the architect of the most significant moment of my life to date. And I'm still so very, very sorry for every important call I disconnected and every meeting I simply forgot to tell you about. I did tell you I was terrible. For a handful of years, this was the depth and breadth of our relationship. There were new jobs on new magazines, but our dynamic remained the same, boss and mentee. Until one day, an out-of-work drink invitation taking place in the empty days between Christmas and New Year. We had dinner in the upstairs room of a pub with your beautiful wife, then-girlfriend, and my handsome boyfriend, now ex. What followed were evenings in sticky Soho nightclubs and dark basement bars, seven-hour kitchen discos, an ear-assaulting karaoke in the garage that would send your kids fleeing. Sorry, kids, I know we've put you through a lot. Once our friendship began, it mutated quickly into something more akin to family. We shared a working class background, a fear of rich people, 
A love of films and books and records that bent our brains. A belief in graft and warmth and fierce, unwavering loyalty. These were the years when my relationship with most members of my family was, in its best moments, strained and in its worst, non-existent. At various times in our friendship, we've called you my Jewish mum and my shit dad. You're both of these things and more. The unconditional care you offered up freely was a novelty I eyed like a new bald baby bird. And unconditional it was. We survived red hair, ginger hair, bleach blonde, brunette and black, the close continental crop, the bafflingly gigantic beehive, the stuck to my head with a glue gun in the flat of an Essex woman who definitely wasn't a hairdresser extensions, the heavy drinking years when I knocked myself out in the back of a black cab, the episodes of shoeless crying punctuated by nonsensical ramblings, the failed relationships with men I introduced you to as the one, really this time, the disastrous move to another city, the city in which I had a breakdown that I narrated to you by email, the sleeves pulled over fresh cuts inflicted by knives in my own fists, the conflicting, competing mental health diagnoses and the booze and pills overdose that finally saw me sectioned 3,459 miles away from home. I told less than a handful of people where I was, what I'd done. You and your wife were counted on one of my fingers. While my world shook and shifted under my weight, you were constant. Checking in, calling the psych ward phone, sending the flowers. The daisies that when they arrived were one of the few possessions I, as a person who was a danger to myself, was permitted to keep. All of this makes it sound as though ours is a friendship stitched tight with sadness and trauma and drama. It's not... Well, okay, there are traces of it in our two-decade friendship, but it's not that what binds. For what looms large in my mind is the Northern Soul Dancing, the 2am debates about class and art and gender, the utterly perfectly precise birthday gifts, the cheese eating, there's been a lot of cheese eating, and the euphoric gigs, telling you I was pregnant unexpectedly at 41, asking you to be godfather to my son less than a year later, because of course you would be, and the laughing, my god the laughing. We've now been friends for almost half my life, and I know we will be for the rest of our lives. I can still see the flowers, I always will. Constant, unconditional, the flash of light and life. Thank you for being my friend. Phil, how does it feel hearing that letter? Very, very emotional. Yeah, it's difficult going back to those very, very tough times when you were in New York. Um, And they were very sad and very frightening. And I think you protected me and my wife from quite a lot of those realities. So I think where you say... It was a blow-by-blow email account. We kept up that correspondence while you were there, but I think you saved us from a lot of the the details, which we discovered through your book, really, and which were very upsetting. But it's lovely to hear all that celebrated publicly. You're so right to say it hasn't always been this, and it's not always this intense and heavy reflection on these moments. It's a right laugh. And it'd be a terrible shame for people, because they're so 
memorable, aren't they? Those elements to the to the friendship because they're unusual for people to say that's the normal situation. You're one of the people that can make a night out explode with energy. You're determined to make the most of every time people sit around a table with wine and food. And you taught us so much about fun and the energy that you put into an evening to get the energy back out again. There's so much more to it than that intensity and sadness. Although, as you say, it's there, it's been there and we haven't shied away from it. But it's so lovely to hear. I can't thank you enough. How would you sum up that friendship, Phil? You've talked about the fun and the energy and Terry's talked about how she's lent on you. I mean, she calls you specifically Jewish mum and shit dad, which might be the best explanation I've uh, <laughs> ever heard of anyone ever. But yeah, what does that dynamic feel like from your side? It's moved over the years into a much more equal relationship in that I'm obviously much older. And in the past, our uh, relative lifestyles were really, really different. So part of the thing of you always talk about the kitchen, where which is my kitchen, our kitchen, where you've come to have a good time. And that's remained our kitchen throughout the throughout the friendship. While you've stayed in lots and lots of different places, rental properties, you've moved around the world. So we've been kind of a, a steadying, older, rock-like or slightly more dull and grey existence compared to yours, depending which way you look at it. But now you've become this you know, huge and powerful figure in your, uh, in your work and you're older yourself and someone I would turn to for advice and have done. So that's been lovely for me to see us look eye to eye much more as the years have gone by. Terry, how did you feel reflecting on your friendship? I mean, going back to those early days, you talk about actually Phil was someone you were pestering for a job. How did it feel reflecting on that and how far your friendship had changed and evolved over that time? Yeah, it's weird because, you know, two decades we've known each other and two decades ago I was Phil's PA and, you know, the thought that we would develop this incredibly important friendship would never have entered my mind and it is interesting the way that our lives have evolved and changed and when we were first friends Phil's kids were really young I was single you know partying a lot and we were at very different life stages and in more recent years we've definitely lifestyles have become more aligned until I then went and got pregnant and it was really weird because I was like oh these were meant to be the years when we're kind of have almost the same level of responsibility because Phil's kids had grown up and moved away from home and we were kind of all there on a level. And then I fell pregnant. I say, like, I fell on some sperm, but I fell pregnant. And and suddenly, you know, it was weird because suddenly I was kind of in the position Phil and his wife had been when I'd first met them. And, you know, now when we plan, I mean, obviously COVID has been... A thing but when we were able to see each other when the lockdowns lifted we had to think about you know the baby and who's going to look after the baby and, and suddenly the dynamic shifted again when we had our son which is amazing because one of the things I love most about our friendship is that it doesn't matter how our individual lives change or where they're at our relationship kind of molds around it to fit so whether I lived three and a half thousand miles away or whether I have a newborn baby whatever it is our relationship seems to mould around whatever our life looks like at the time, which I think is the sign of a true and enduring friendship. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? 
and some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. When you talk about the Jewish mom and shit dad, is there a sense that when our families don't work, our friendships start to take on a whole new meaning? Yeah, and I think especially in the early days of our relationship when I was, you know, very early 20s, mid-20s, and actually when we start to hang out outside of work, it was more towards 30, there was definitely kind of a paternal role played by Phil. And actually his wife, they were kind of, you know, not parental figures, because we always used to joke about this and, you know, nobody wants to be my dad. Who wants to be my dad? Nobody wants to be my dad. But what it's meant kind of is it, it has shifted to be much more of a friendship of equals and peers but I think where there has been gaps in relationships with my family and support then Phil has definitely always been there in that capacity as somebody who isn't afraid of the bad shit isn't afraid of the dark shit isn't afraid to kind of be there in the most desperate and dark of situations and as we say that isn't the entire dynamic we've had more fun together than most people will have but I think to have a friend where it's unconditional and it is more of a situation you'd find with your family where it's unflinching and it's unconditional I think that is the important key thing really yeah I think that's really true isn't it because not all friendships have that actually we get different things from different friendships but certainly the dynamic that you're sharing is one that has been we will tackle the tough stuff together yes and hopefully in you know in both ways whenever either of us need that kind of support and Phil's probably right in terms of I look back on some of our emails when I was writing the letter and we shared a lot of emails when I was in New York and Phil checked in a lot because I was obviously in a new city by myself and I the way I wrote to him was kind of protecting him as he said I didn't want to kind of reveal how bad things were but he would always pick up on my tone like a weird way I was relating a story or something I'd say that didn't sound quite right or I'd say something seemingly kind of off the cuff in a joking manner that clearly there was a bit of a grain of truth to so I think he's always had the ability to look between those lines and to kind of pick up on those moments when I maybe wasn't 
you know, being entirely forthcoming on those difficulties. Phil, did you realise that? Was that your side of it? Did you realise something wasn't right and that's what you were picking up on as a friend? Yeah, but I also feel a sense of guilt, and Terry and I have talked about this, a retrospective guilt, in that I think there were times when we were looking for the fun and there was a bit of a, you know, we don't necessarily need to look behind the curtain. So there's a kind of a complicity in that handling of the darker areas, especially I think back to trips where two trips we made to New York while you were there, on for me on both occasions, and we were on holiday, you know, as a family, having a fantastic time. And we felt lucky to be included in what we assumed was your busy and amazing New York life for the windows that we were there. And I think during those periods, often you must have been deeply unhappy, but you put on a great show for us and you did your best. There was a moment I'll never forget where we were in a cafe, very, very cold New York day, I think minus three, just around the corner from your flat. And my wife said, hey, we're just up the road. Why don't we look at your place? You know, we could pop over. And I knew that's not something that would have been appropriate at that time, a surprise check on your living conditions. And then when you read the details of how you were living at that time in the book, you could see you were definitely not up for a family of four tromping up to your place because things weren't quite as they ought to have been at that time. So I have questioned my own actions on all that stuff and also around the drinking, which I really enjoy a night of powerful drinking. And I'm not sure always we were drinking on the same agenda. And I feel kind of bad about the, wow, that was a big night for me and my wife and we'll take it easy for a few weeks probably after a night like that. And you would be probably bang on it the next night and with a very different state of mind. So I've asked myself some difficult questions about that time. Does what Phil described there, Terry, describe the truth for you? I said this to him, as far as I'm concerned, he's just been the most incredible supportive brilliant person so the thought of him feeling guilty for a second is kind of astonishing to me really you know people only ever reveal and share uh, what they want to and I think the thought that you could have looked any deeper and picked up on stuff and all of that I don't think that's anyone else's responsibility I think am and was responsible for my own well-being and my own mental health and my own behavior And, you know, the drinking thing is an interesting one because there was definitely years where I massively abused alcohol and, you know, wake up with the panic and the shame the next day, even sometimes after seeing Phil and his wife because I couldn't remember the last couple of hours of the night. But before that, we would be having the most glorious, glorious time. So even when things were at their most difficult and I was kind of behaving in my most chaotic, the kind of bit of joy and and light in it always was our friendship. And whenever we met up or, you know, had dinner or they came to town when I lived in New York, that always felt like a bit of a moment that I could breathe out and I could have this lovely moment and lovely time with people that I loved and cared about and trusted. And even if I wasn't able to fully express what I was going through at the time this moment and this gap of being able to feel something approaching normal and to feel safe with these people that I loved very much was kind of really significant to me. Yeah, that's the thing. It's when you talk and actually you can hear those connections and those moments, even when there is something else happening and how important they were actually in terms of your friendship, but also in your health as well as you go through. Phil, Terry talks about 
you choose what you share with someone. Did Terry make it hard for you to be her friend and for you to be there for her? I don't think so. No, it wasn't hard. I think it was more a sense of wanting to keep her end up, her performance level at a standard that she considered appropriate. So you're dealing with someone who on top form is one of the funniest people I've ever met in my life and one of the brightest people. So when we would engage on a book that we both read or a movie, it's engaging with like no one on earth, what a brain. And then when we start laughing, it's fantastic. So wanting to keep that up so that the next evening is as good as the last one is kind of a pressure I think that Terry would feel. So it's a question of trying to keep that performance going whilst having in the background really challenging issues going on. So often the, the evening in reality would fall into different sections and often there was a very late night section where we would then go there and go to the darker areas. But what would normally for most people quite a long evening of fun. So it was like a kind of double evening in one. And then after that, then you would say, hey, let's go in the other room and sing horrendous, ear shattering karaoke at each other. So you'd have like seven or eight evenings in one, really. So it wasn't hard, but there's definitely that sense of Terry wanting to be the best Terry she could for us. Yeah, I do remember thinking I didn't want to be a shit version of myself. I was thinking nobody wants to invite that girl round for dinner. Nobody wants to hang out with that girl, the girl who's crying and knocking herself out and wants to talk about the intense dark stuff all the time. Or it's just a bit sad. Nobody really wants to invite the sad girl round for cheese and wine, right? Like, that doesn't sound like an appealing evening. So I I definitely recognise what Phil is saying because I did have this sense of a kind of summoning all the energy and positivity and stuff that I could manage so that they would want to still hang out with me. Because, you know, when you have mental illness and depression and anxiety, whatever it may be, part of you thinks you're entirely unlovable, that, you know people when pushed wouldn't really want to be in your life or be around your company. So a lot of that performance is around convincing people over and over again that actually you're pretty cool and pretty funny and, and, you know, look what a good time we can have together. But there's definitely a sense of I found it easier to enjoy myself around Phil and his wife because they are such amazing company and kind of bring the best out in me and I do feel more relaxed and comfortable in that environment. Um, So it's not like I was kind of performing the entire time, but there was definitely a sense when I would walk in the kitchen that, okay, bring your A-game, don't be just the sad girl. You talk about the eight evenings in one, and I guess that's the truth, is that you are a different version of yourself at those different parts of that evening. I think it's something I can definitely relate to that feeling where you almost have to be your best self for that person. I think you're trying to perform your best version of yourself. Especially for people who you respect and love and you want to be around, you know, you want to bring your best self to it. But I guess as your friendship evolved, you've shown all aspects to one another, actually, of who you really are. Terry, I wanted to touch on the flowers because obviously you opened your letter with that, but it's quite a dominant part of your book as well. And these are the flowers that Phil and his wife sent to you whilst you were in hospital. What did they mean to you? Because you talked about carrying this dying bouquet of flowers with you out of the hospital at the end. Yeah, if you're into symbolism, then, you know, you're going to very much enjoy this. So, I mean, it was really important to me. So as I kind of said in the letter, very few people knew where I was and what had happened. I was very not keen for people to know 
that I was mentally unwell and that mentally unwell. I was very concerned about my job, about people's perceptions of me, about other friendships. So I was very fixed on most people not knowing and I didn't tell many people at all but I did tell Phil and when the flowers came in it's such a simple gesture but it was so meaningful in that moment because when you are in a psychiatric ward and I was initially on a 24-7 kind of suicide watch you can't really have any of your possessions you're constantly being watched it's an incredibly difficult slightly dehumanizing experience for sure And then when I actually went into the psychiatric ward itself, you know, they take everything away from you, your phone, your computer, anything that you may hurt yourself with. I was just left with a few clothes, a pencil, a book. And so you kind of lose any sight of your identity and who you are. And it's a bit of an existential crisis. You're there in the world without anything that makes you you in a completely foreign extreme environment nothing about your life looks the same as it looked this time last week you're completely not in control and so I found it massively massively comforting the thought that somebody I knew and cared about cared that I was in there but also that they'd sent almost like a part of themselves in there and I took those flowers to the psych ward I carried them out of the psych ward I took them home with me and I really didn't want to let them go and it became something that I weirdly clung on to because it was a small sense of normality and I suppose hope in a certain way so yeah I've thought about those flowers a huge amount since I was in hospital and after I came out and it was a hugely important and meaningful thing for Phil to have done. Phil, did you have any sense of that? Well, it's from my end, it was so awful because I'd lost a friend, a very old friend who committed suicide not that long before. So I knew I'd been at that funeral, I'd spoken at that funeral and I knew what that was all about. So it was very frightening. And the other thing was that Terry was unreachable at the very moment where you'd like to reach out to someone and speak to them more frequently rather than less. It was Terry's silence that alerted me that something was up, as I remember correctly. You've got a much better memory than I have, Terry, but normally we would have a communication weekly or, or twice a week. I can't remember. You were gone. You went quiet. And going quiet was worrying. And then there you were when it was finally revealed where you were. It was very scary and sad. And you were so far away. So this sense of wanting to send something physical as a way of reaching out and crossing all those miles with a physical thing was the minimum gesture that you could do to make yourself feel that you were there for Terry. It's quite technically awkward to order flowers for someone across the Atlantic while they're in a ward like that, and I'm a massive doofus on any kind of admin. So it's kind of slave through that to get something to you, but um, so pleased they got to you as well, and they weren't just cast aside because the sense of someone in that secure unit is you are not going to be able to get to them. You can't call them nothing. That is so hard. Yeah, it's a terrifying prospect. When was the moment that you connected after that then, when you sort of felt that Terry was okay? There were quite a few stages. My memory, again, is that of you protecting us quite a lot. So this story became, I'm okay now. It was a drunken mistake. 
And one of the reveals subsequently was that it was much more of a deliberate, um, pre-planned action. And we'd always kind of, it always been a, an area that interested you. And most of your favourite artists at that time would have been people who had ended their lives. There was the, the Sylvia Plath and Ian Curtis and uh, Sarah Kane. That's just three <laughs> off the top of my head. So it's a dark um area that you'd always been drawn to but to be in that situation so then it was that was a story I probably was all too ready to accept yeah drunken mistake basically fine as you say there were multiple diagnoses there was the brief patch of sobriety we all confusedly drove to a pizza place I drove so I didn't want to drink with you that was completely counter to everything we'd ever done that didn't last very long and then it was a sober Terry um, so yeah it was a process but again you were always protecting us Phil, we've talked a lot about how you've helped Terry through the years, but what has she helped you through? How do you rely on her in your friendship? Yeah, for me, Terry's a fantastic person to go to with any kind of issue you have. I think much more adept than I am at um, the machinations of work. I feel like a, such a naive child, bizarrely, because I'm, I'm older and I was your boss. And I was the guy who sat in the board meetings but you just know how people operate. And I always felt like a naive. And you're someone I'd still turn to for some navigation around that. It's also lovely seeing um, a reflection of yourself back that's kind of your best use. That whole thing works both ways. I'm not without my issues and anxieties and can dwell on all that stuff. And then you spend time with someone who goes, we're all going to be our best selves for the evening. And I want to live up to Terry's idea of who I am which is a fantastic way to spend a night with um, the best me rather than a kind of whiny, anxious me that I can produce on other occasions. So, so much she's given me. And just that, probably finally, that massive brain to when you've enjoyed something and she's enjoyed something, a movie or a book, it's such a pleasure to roll it around and kick it and look at it from all the different angles and hear what she's got to say about it. That's a brilliant gift to have in your life. It's an incredible gift to have. And it's so obvious between you. You talk a lot about the laughter. You talk a lot about shared interests and moments. And there is so much more that brings you together. I mean, it's such a cliche, but meeting of the minds, because I think you two share a lot of favourite things. I think you mentioned Northern Soul already, but there are lots of things that you both like to do that drive your friendship. What would you guys say are the key memories and the moments that have really defined your friendship over the years? I mean, I remember the first meeting outside of work, which was a room in a pub in Camden that we still like to frequent. And I remember laughing that night really, really, really hard. And there was a moment when I was like, I think we're going to be friends. There was like an actual, I think we're going to be friends moment. Imagine if like we had loads of nights like this where there was like, we talked about loads of stuff and we talked about books and films and then we had a right laugh. I remember being very excited by the possibility of the friendship that lay ahead. I mean, there were just so many nights in different basement bars when we used to hang out with my um, plea handsome ex-boyfriend, who we knew it was never going to last, but, you know, we greatly enjoyed those nights. Can you remember the Roxy phase? I remember us all going there and we were all so excited. And then we went to a Northern Soul night for New Year's Eve 
and we'd like all watched Phil's wife agog because she'd managed to become a professional northern soul dancer basically while we all flailed around in the corner she dominated the dance floor and had everybody looking at her because she's apparently the most proficient northern soul dancer ever there's festivals we've been to when we went to see new order at ali pali like there are just so many memories when i remember very specific evenings and feelings it's always those memories that i go to I have a whole recollection of the nights that led up to asking you if you wanted to come to meet me and my wife at the pub because I was your boss. So it was a clear conscious transition in my mind because I take the sort of responsibilities of Boston quite seriously. So to compromise that and move on from that, I had to go through various checklists in my brain. But I remember there were award ceremonies that we sat with each other at. It's an industry that it certainly used to give itself plenty of awards, and these were extraordinarily lengthy evenings. I remember about 30 or 40 awards in the one night. So you get plenty of time to sit there with each other and getting to know Terry outside of work, Terry, and hearing these stories. And it sort of dawns on you that someone has come from a completely different place than anyone else in the room. And I was cynically sitting there thinking, this is the kind of thing people like me end up doing. But for Terry sitting there, it was worth very different journey to the other 600 people there waiting to get their awards and we got to know each other over these silver service dinners always a kind of dodgy rubbery steak and a horrible wine and then a disco afterwards and then this person emerged and I thought oh she's too brilliant to just allow to be a colleague she's got to be a mate so you make that advance but your fear is as a boss that they're kind of coming along out of some sense of obligation it's a sort of awful trial and a you know, they just can't wait to get out. And like, thank God that's over. So it's so lovely that it worked out because it'd be really humiliating. And uh, it's, it's quite a leap to do that from my end of things, actually. Did you realise that, Terry? I don't think I did. I mean, I remember thinking, oh, God, if I fuck it up or say something I shouldn't or, you know, then I'm going to have to go into work and, like, how do I then style that out if I do something terrible, if I break some kind of rule or break the friendship in some way but because actually whenever we weren't working on layouts or whatever it was in the office whenever we just talked about life and art and where we've both come from and families and stuff like that we always had a ton to say to each other and I never remember kind of consciously thinking when we first met about that it being a big deal or being potentially awkward or anything like that it was just a brilliant 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 time and I suddenly had this new friend in my life who I just had the greatest greatest evenings with we used to plan our evenings and I would really look forward to those evenings like even when I lived in New York we would plan these kitchen disco nights for when I came home And they would be there on the wall, like, you know, 16 days to go until I can be back in the kitchen doing the disco. And those evenings became real kind of high spots and moments of joy for me that I massively look forward to and still do. Is that how you'll spend your first post-COVID night out together, kitchen disco? That's your favourite thing to do together? Very welcome. It's always there. It's the all-inness of those evenings, and that was a big lesson for me. You're, you're a very all-in person when you go out and, and have a good time, and, and a lot of people aren't. I'm not always, and there's a sense of, I'll get through this evening without making a complete fool of myself. I don't want to be too tired the next day. A kind of mealy-mouthed, grey version of an evening. That was never, never an evening with Terry. All-in, complete immersion. 
And that brilliant. And you're immersed together and you have a fantastic and quite extreme time. I don't know if my internal organs will thank me in the long run, but boy, did we have some brilliant evenings. Phil, one last question. Are you tempted to write Terry a letter in return? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, yeah. It's a lovely format and it's nice to say the things that you don't normally say because it's a bit much. It's a great thing to do. Yeah, everyone should write their mates a letter. We do hope you do and we will invite you back to share yours one day, Phil, too. You'll enjoy that, I can imagine. I just want to say an absolutely huge thank you to you both, actually. It's been such a honest, candid conversation and just such a total privilege to be part of it. And I have to say, I think you're both so incredibly lucky to have found this friendship in each other. It's truly very special and I think... Lots of people be quite envious of the connection that you both have. That's exactly how I felt listening to it, just how lucky you both seem. Like, it's just a lovely friendship. It really is. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. Thank you. If this episode has raised any mental health issues, either for you or something that you suspect your friend might be struggling with, then do head to mind.org or the NHS website to find some really useful resources. Massive thanks again to Terry White for her brilliant letter to Phil. Terry shares more about her breakdown in New York and the events that lead up to her crisis and subsequent recovery in her book, Coming Undone, which is out in paperback from April. And if you've been inspired to write a love letter to your friend, as Phil has, and we hope you do too, because we're on a mission to reclaim love letters for the most important relationships in our lives, we want to read and hear yours. So hop over to our Love Letters to My Friend account on Instagram and DM us your letters and voice notes and we'll put our favourites in future episodes. We'd like to ask you a friendly favour too. If you rate and review this podcast, it will really help us to reach more people. And don't forget to subscribe so you can hear more friends share their love letters. Thanks for listening, friends. This series is the brainchild of hosts and friends, Lisa Smazarski and Alex Walker, and is an II Studios production. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.